welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Greetings, and welcome to the Mad in America podcast. I'm Amy Biancoli, staff reporter for madinamerica.com. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Adele Framer, also known by her online handle, Altostrata. She founded survivingantidepressants.org, a critical and comprehensive peer support website that features several thousand case histories of psychiatric drug withdrawal. The site is a hub of information on the topic, highlighting methods of safe drug tapering and recovery, and underscoring the humanity of those in the grips of withdrawal. So our guest today is a hugely knowledgeable lay expert, having gone through an 11-year withdrawal herself and researched the topic in depth. She speaks to us from her home in San Francisco, where she's lived for more than 40 years. So Adele Framer, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I so look forward to hearing your story and the story behind the site's creation. We will get to that in very short order. But first off, a why. Why is survivingantidepressants.org so important? Why was it necessary? What role does it play? What gap does it fill? Hi, Amy. Thanks for um, having me. I appreciate it. When I went off of Paxil in 2004, um, I was uh, under the, um, the care of uh, a, a, what I thought was an elite psychiatry department up at the University of California, San Francisco. And I went off over a few weeks in October, which is the, the usual way of going off. And, um, and I immediately got severe withdrawal syndrome, which was misdiagnosed and uh, not properly treated. So after that, I experienced uh, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which took 11 years for me to recover. And at that time, um, of course, in 2004, I had these symptoms. My doctors didn't seem to know what they were. And I, I did some Googling. I, I've always been a kind of a ferocious researcher. And I Googled around and I very quickly found papers about uh, antidepressant withdrawal syndrome and uh, paroxetine withdrawal syndrome in particular. Um, And this was in 2004, so it wasn't anywhere, it wasn't a secret. As a matter of fact, the FDA had put a warning about withdrawal syndrome on Paxil in 2001. So this information was out there, and uh, I I did spend quite a bit of time trying to persuade my doctors that that's what I was suffering. I printed out papers for them. I tried to, you know, I very earnestly tried to engage them in what I thought were intelligent discussions about my uh, symptoms and what could be done. I asked for reinstatement of Paxil, which is was in all of the papers, and it's it was printed by the FDA on the Paxil, uh, the information insert in the Paxil package. So, so that was not a secret either, but they refused to do that and they insisted that I was relapsing despite all of this evidence. 
So I was left without any medical assistance at all. I, 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 I went from doctor to doctor asking them for help, and, no, and everybody told me I'd relapse, even though I had these weird symptoms. I had brain zaps for seven months. I, was, um, uh, I couldn't sleep. I, was, uh, uh, I, had, I had these like overwhelming surges of anxiety, which I had never felt before in my life. I was unable to tolerate any kind of heat heat change. I, I was I was intolerant to heat. I was having these temperature surges and uh, a lot of disorientation. And um, although you know through this all, I was like very very focused on trying to find medical help. I talked to dozens of psychiatrists. Nobody had any idea what was going on with me. And again. I was saying there are these papers, I was telling them about it, and they just completely brushed that off. You were more knowledgeable than they were. At and that you, point, yeah. yeah. it's very strange to me because I was completely new to this. I mean, I had never, I never thought of myself as a, as a psychiatric patient. My Paxil had been prescribed to me by my um, internist. And uh, because I, I was having this, I was having what I thought was work stress at the time, and 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 it was really a problem for me. It was during the dot com crash. This was very early in my association with psychiatry because I had, you know, I, I thought that I would go to the UCF psychiatry department for the best possible advice about how to go off Paxil. This was a complete dead end for me. And so um, I started poking around the web some more because I had no other option. And um, I found um, a site called Paxil Progress. And uh, this was about in 2005. And at first I thought, well, I'm not going to take advice from people on the web. I mean, you know, this is their, you know, like rando advice from who knows who on the web. This is, you know, that's not. That's not what I want to do for my medical care. So, so it took me a while to realize that that's, that was the only place I was going to get any, any uh, you know, intelligent feedback. So I en ended up joining PaxilProgress.org, and I think that I was a, a member there for about seven years. Progress. The Paxil Group, that, was, that closed a few years ago, right? That shut down a few years ago. Right, but right. There, are other, there are many other peer support groups right now that are that are psych drug specific, right? Like on Facebook and such. Oh yeah. Uh, but I think that it's interesting to observe that at that time in the early 2000s, there were several websites having to do with uh, antidepressant withdrawal, but you know, they were specialized. There was a site about Effexor. Uh, I think there was a site about Zoloft, maybe Sertraline. There were, there were thousands of people hitting the web looking for help with this. Um, I think that Paxil Progress, you know, so historians will have to check me on this, but I believe it had 20,000 members. Wow. And that, so, so there's been tens of thousands of people joining these websites over the years. And, you know, if you think of like this is a rolling problem, we're talking about, you know, rolling up into the millions probably. Paxil Progress closed in, um, I guess, like 2012 maybe. Since then, uh, the, 
action has moved over to Facebook. So there's like, there are many, many groups on Facebook having to do with going off of different kinds of antidepressants and post-acute withdrawal syndrome and benzodiazepine withdrawal. There's a, a huge community about dealing with benzodiazepine tapering withdrawal. Enormous. A question for you in the midst of all this. I mean, what you're describing is a community, a peer support community of people really working hard to figure out these issues for themselves. And that's what what has popped out at me repeatedly when I was looking at your website and, and, and some of the other information available out there. I'm curious, first of all, tracking back to your experience and you're realizing, oh my gosh, uh, I, I think I've read somewhere that you cranked through something like more than 50 psychiatrists, right? At some point early on? Well, uh, I, I, searched for, I searched for somebody, I searched for a psychiatrist for, for four years. Right. So, yeah, so I, you know, I probably, yeah, probably like, you know, like probably around 50s. You know, I, via email, I contacted anybody, you know, because I was like hunting around through the literature and um, I contacted anybody who um, had ever written about antidepressant withdrawal. I corresponded with Stephen Dilsaver, who is, um, had written very, very early uh, papers about withdrawal from tricyclics. I mean, there was nobody who could offer me any kind of like actual treatment. Well, so at what point did you realize, did you have this kind of awakening? Like at what point did you realize, wait, maybe this isn't a relapse. Uh, maybe this is withdrawal. And at, at what point did you realize that you had to kind of take it into your own hands? I realized immediately that it wasn't relapse. You know, the symptoms were so bizarre. Right. There's no way that somebody could actually say that one is relapsing when you're having like brain zaps and, you know, and these like bizarre electrical surges throughout your body. And I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd that this is presumed to be relapse. You know, doctors must not be listening to what their patients are telling them when their patients are describing the symptoms. Just to, to clarify, brain zaps, you mentioned them. Those are those involuntary seizure-like um, things that, that that attack you out of the blue, right? How would you describe a brain zap for someone who's never well, had one? People feel them in different ways, but I'll tell you how I feel them. And I felt it as like a little, a little electrical zap, a little, a little bzzzit inside my brain. It was somewhere, it was in my head. And it generally occurred when I moved my eyes, but it didn't seem to be associated with, uh, you know, like moving them in one direction or the other. Uh, but that's classic. I mean, that's how they're classically described as it's, it's, it's associated with eye movement. Uh, but people feel them in different ways. And then there's a, an associated phenomenon where people will feel electrical sensations in their bodies, like they'll feel them in their arms or in their uh, backs or legs or wherever. So the biochemistry of the, electric, uh, the body's electrical system is definitely involved. <laughs> Right. And you talk about that a lot and the difference between acute withdrawal and the long-term withdrawal. Can you address that a little bit right now and the, the kind of the difference in the, like, physiologically, what do we know about what's going on in withdrawal, both acute and then the latter? This is not my strong suit, but I'll give you my amateur picture of it, the way that I visualize it. First of all, 
all psychotropics, this has to do with any with a prescribed psychotropic, psychotropic that's not prescribed, street drugs, any kind of any kind of psychotropic. If you take it regularly, uh, your nervous system will adapt to it. And for many drugs, this adaptation takes the form of downregulation of certain receptors. It differs from drug to drug, to drug which receptors are involved, but, but there must be a more universal nervous system adaptation because withdrawal, symptom, uh, withdrawal syndromes from different drugs have so much in common. So in, in acute withdrawal, the drug is removed and the receptors having been they downregulate. That means that they uh, they've adjusted themselves to a a high amount of a substance. So they turn off their uh, intake valves to reduce, you know, to, to compensate to to maintain a, a homeostatic level of that substance. So and and so when the drug is removed, their little intake valves are still turned off. The way the nervous system works, the way our bodies work, is that there's a, there's a, a web of interconnected feedback mechanisms. So when once one system tells the other system what's going on, and then the other system makes an adaptation, and then a third system makes an adaptation, and they all feed back to each other. So, so in this situation of downregulation, let's say with antidepressants, the serotonin system it's sending out signals to the rest of your body that it's dysregulated. It's, they're send, it's sending out signals to the rest of your body that doesn't really represent the true um, level of the substance because the sensors are desensitized. So uh, it takes some time for that downregulation to correct itself. And my theory is that that is the period of acute withdrawal. So, so that's the period of acute withdrawal. And then, then, the, re, then the sensors come back online to some extent, there's a question about whether um, for some people this adaptation is extremely slow and uh, that contributes to a very prolonged post-acute withdrawal uh, period. But that period of acute withdrawal is generally over some number of weeks, like one to nine weeks. And with antidepressants, uh, it's always been supposed to be two or three weeks. That was the recommendation in your case, right? When you went off Paxil, it was over three weeks? Well, that's the tapering, but the after discontinuation withdrawal syndrome from okay. antidepressants has been assumed to last only a couple of weeks and is very mild, transient, self-correcting, nothing to worry about. So that's been the, the classic understanding of uh, doctors that withdrawal symptoms only last, you know, are very trivial and um, last only a few weeks, and then you're done with them. Uh, and then anything that persists after a few weeks must be relapsed. And that means anything. No matter how unusual and how strange it feels to you and how outrageous. It's right, just, even if it's brain zaps and, yeah. and nausea and insomnia, anything after that is considered to be a relapse. So in my, my belief is that for 50 years or 60 years, psychiatry has been mistaking acute withdrawal for all of withdrawal. And they've been disregarding the post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So, so post-acute withdrawal syndrome 
comes in, there's a certain, you know, so there's this period of, ad, of re-adaptation that lasts some number of weeks and, or a couple months. Or, and, um, and then people feel a little bit different. I mean, they still feel terrible and they still might have quite severe symptoms, but it changes. It becomes a little bit more predictable. And that's the post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And in my belief, that arises from the more extensive adaptation of the nervous system and the rest of the body to, to that drug over time. And it just takes a really long time you know, for all those body systems to get straightened out again. I mean, they are knocked for a loop. When You're talking about the autonomic nervous system, right? And how it's different of, in everybody. A lot of the symptoms seem to be autonomic. And so the, uh, a lot of the symptoms have much in common with dysautonomia, which in neurology can arise out of unknown circumstances and fluctuates a great deal and comes and goes and, you know, they don't know what to do about it. Uh, the autonomic system dysregulation is, is a mystery across medicine, but it can be observed in all psychotropic withdrawal. All the literature on psychotropic withdrawal refers to some degree of autonomic system involvement. And that includes addictive drugs, non-addictive drugs, street drugs, all of it. I hope that this makes sense to people because I'm really, I'm not an expert in this area and I would really like, I really like an expert to come in and take a really good look at what's going on in acute withdrawal versus post-acute withdrawal as far as you know, nervous system adaptation and the reestablishment of homeostasis. Well, so your website, survivingantidepressants.org, it has 6,000 plus case histories. It's got um, more than 60 topics specific to tapering, right? And so if somebody wants to get off effects or they're suffering withdrawal, they can go to that specific topic. But what about what if somebody listening now uh, who's maybe going through something similar, what can they do? How can they get involved? Because I know uh, the website has 14,000, more than 14,000 registered members. So what happens when somebody is looking for help and they need advice? Um, what can they do on your website? From our experience, we believe that the severity of withdrawal syndrome is related to the rate of tapering. And this makes sense. If you, you know, if you read the literature, it makes sense that once the nervous system is adapted to a psychotropic, that very gradual decrease of that psychotropic will enable, uh, better enable adaptation without causing a tremendous disruption to the entire nervous system. So we, we emphasize the importance of tapering to avoid withdrawal sim- uh, syndrome. If somebody is, has been taking, let's say, you know, an antidepressant like Cymbalta for some number of years, um, and they want to go off the drug, before they do anything, what they should do is read up on the drug on drugs.com so they understand 
what the FDA has has uh, published about that drug. In, uh, that's in the professional information area of uh, drugs.com. They should understand the side effects of the drug. And then they should consider tapering. Uh, we have a topic that is specific to tapering Cymbalta. And Cymbalta is, um, has its own uh, withdrawal issues. It appears to be quite difficult to go off. It comes in, uh, I think it's 20 milligram capsules. And, and with Cymbalta, the, the little capsules are full of beads. So you have to be careful about not crushing or destroying the beads because if you do, then the, the drug is destroyed. And uh, there's a, um, a Facebook group specifically about tapering Cymbalta that has 25,000 members that's really gone, really looked into great detail about tapering Cymbalta. But anyway, on my website, we have a, uh, a topic about tapering Cymbalta, and it will explain how you can taper by opening the capsules and counting out beads. Now, that's the only way you can taper it. You can't make a liquid from it because the liquid, you know, because that would destroy those little beads. Uh, a, a compounding pharmacy could take the beads and put them into smaller capsules for you. But otherwise, that's you have to work with those capsules. What we want people to do is to start off with gradual tapering instead of uh, making those big decreases that their doctors recommend, because that generates withdrawal syndrome. And when you develop withdrawal syndrome, it's it's kind of a big hit to your nervous system. So you want, to, you want to minimize that injury to your nervous system by extremely gradual tapering. And uh, most doctors won't understand this. A few minutes ago, you said you're not an expert, but you are an expert. You just happen to be a lay expert. And I know on your website, you make clear that you're not giving medical advice because you can't, being a lay expert. However, you are one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on this topic. And you created this website that has been a godsend for a lot of people. And, and I know I, in the past, you referred to your own experience with withdrawal as psychiatric hell that you went through. And a lot of people are, are going through it, have gone through it, are seeking out this kind of peer support. And the question is, why is it that psychiatrists don't know more and don't listen more to patients? Mm -hmm. Why don't they listen? Why does it have to be lay people like you who are tackling this? You know, that's a question that as far back as I can remember, patients have been asking each other on these, you know, in these communities, <laughs> why doesn't my doctor understand this? You know, you know it's in the literature. You know, there, there are hundreds of papers about antidepressant withdrawal. Most clinicians, you know, most practitioners, and certainly not your GP, don't read those papers. Still, in every form of guideline there is, there's a line somewhere that says tapering off should be gradual. The thing is, is that gradual is never defined. You know, I, I really want to say that the only reason that I'm an expert is because it's like the dark ages out there in the field as far as tapering and withdrawal is concerned. I would like to say very humbly, the only reason that I'm an expert is because there's virtually no competition and, and it, doctors really should be doing this. 
<laughs> Doctors really should be the ones who are knowledgeable about this and not me. Anybody going on has to be careful going off. That's basically it. That's the bottom line. Anybody going on the drug should know going in that they might have a terrible time going off. And um, a recent paper uh, by Davies and Reed, it really appears that the incidence of withdrawal syndrome is upwards of 40%. Now, that's not a minor problem. Like, that means that you know, just about anybody could have it. It's, it's like a 50-50 proposition. If you went into surgery and you had a 50% chance of coming out injured to the point that it would take you years to recover, you would go, do I really need to surgery? So because it's a 50-50 chance, there's like, you know, like you'll also pe- see people on the web saying, I didn't have any problem at all quitting my drug. I went off cold turkey. That's because it's 50-50. Anyway, but if you're in the unlucky half, you're going to be really unlucky, you know, so there is a range of experience going off the drug. But the thing is, is that any type of withdrawal symptom is not good for your nervous system. I mean, that's your nervous system saying that I'm really suffering. Even if your brain zaps only last for four days, that's your nervous system saying something is really wrong here. But here I'm wondering, is this, is it reflective of this kind of larger irony that medicine isn't always about science? Is, that the, is, that, is this another example of that? Like the difference between medicine and science? I'm glad you brought that up, Amy. Let's say with antidepressants. See, antidepressants are really the model drug for psychiatry. Because when the new generation antidepressants were introduced, that was the SSRIs, SNRIs, and they did have less initial adverse effects compared to the TCAs, which is the TCAs and MAOIs, which were the tools that psychiatrists were working with prior to that. And they were really crappy tools, and the psychiatrists knew that. So, so as a result, there were relatively few people taking TCAs and MAOIs. But the SSRIs you know, made it uh, possible to mass market antidepressants. The pharmaceutical companies really shaped a culture around this. And, you know, even though uh, that more or less tapered off, the the pharmaceutical industry influence tapered off in the mid-2000s, the hard work and millions of dollars that the pharmaceutical industry put into popularizing antidepressants for 20 years has paid off tremendously in that it it, it, it truly shaped the culture of psychiatric treatment. And so the culture of psychiatric treatment, even though uh, pharma has disappeared, its teachings have been embedded into common knowledge in in psychiatry. So there's a a tremendous mythology about antidepressants. And one of them is, is that they are extremely safe and have very little in the way of adverse effects. And because of this influence, the adverse effects are supposed to be extremely rare. The, the issue, the problem with uh, treatment in psychiatry is that an adverse effect often looks like a psychiatric symptom. For instance, if somebody starts taking Prozac and then finds they can't sleep, which is ex- very common actually, they're not being able to sleep is held to be a symptom of depression, which means that the 
possibly that the um, dosage of Prozac might be raised or a benzodiazepine added or some other kind of sleep drug, which brings in other dependency issues because those drugs are technically addictive and they will, like antidepressants, incur dependency after a while. So it's a domino effect leading to cocktails, which incur their own issues. Well, that's, yeah, that's been a tradition for, yeah. you know, for 20 years of those cocktails. And uh, being able to prescribe those cocktails, you know, mixing and matching and making up something that's really tasty that crushes all the symptoms is held to be part of the art of psychiatry. And the practitioners really want to hold on to that. It is hard to understand why, I mean, even though it's really well known, for example, that the introduction of an, of an antidepressant will often cause sleeplessness, and that's an adverse effect, not a beneficial effect. To me, from, you know, like from my layperson's point of view, the logical thing to do would be to reduce the dosage so it would reduce the adverse effect, but in psychiatric practice, it goes in the other direction. They want to, they'll increase the dosage and they'll add drugs to uh, mask the adverse effect. There has been reams written about the problems yeah. of pharmacy and prescription cascade, but again, this doesn't filter down to your prescriber. And then the GPs are, they take their cues from psychiatry and they want it, and it's a, they keep it as simple as possible. The reason the GPs are prescribing uh, psychiatric drugs like crazy is because it's considered to be so damn easy to prescribe psychiatric drugs. Well, now you used the word mythology, which popped out at me because that was one of my questions about the various myths that you tackle, myths, misunderstandings. What strikes me from all that you're saying is that you're talking about the culture and really a larger narrative that the wider culture accepts too. I mean, you're talking about the mental health system and psychiatrists, but it's also something that that's not really discussed in the wider culture. And what strikes me when you're talking about this narrative of, of care and the expectations um, is that when you look at your website, when you look at survivingantidepressants.org and you dive in and you read some of people's stories and they're telling a very different narrative. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the power of sharing stories to trying to change the narrative. Do you think it can change the conversation, the fact that people are maybe speaking out a little bit more and maybe being able to tell their stories? When people read other people's stories, they realize that they're not the only person that's experiencing that problem. Uh, and I think that the that we have 6,000 stories, you realize it's all the same story. And every, each person who experiences it is so surprised that it happened to them. People go through a period of absolute disbelief. I, you know, they just, that, that's, just that, that, that's a phase that people go through that we see over and over again on, our, on the website that they realize that, you know, they've been trusting their doctors to have a certain amount of knowledge and their doctors don't actually have that knowledge. You know, this is heartbreaking. I mean, you know, like I went through this, I couldn't believe it. I felt that the world had fallen out from underneath me. There wasn't any medical safety net. You know, they, they react to that in different ways. 
some people become, you know, makes them very anxious and despondent. For them, it's, you know, it, it's internalized. So it's still like their individual problem. They don't see it as like a large systemic problem. You've looked at the website and you've read it as a, I guess, a, you know, I guess you'd call it a researcher. And so you realize that this is, you know, that there's a sociological phenomenon being revealed here. So the sociological phenomenon it exists. It has not yet filtered into medicine. Medicine has its own ways of gathering information. Uh, and in psychiatry, for some reason, they keep on asking each other what the truth is instead of asking their patients. So the patient voice is not very well recognized in psychiatry at all. What I would like to see after having been at this for so long, and this is like since 2004, what I would like to see is people having a different relationship with their prescribers. We're brought up to respect our doctors and to trust our doctors and to, you know, really cooperate with our doctors. I mean, I, most doctors are very well-intentioned. It's not like they're evil people. They do have their own culture, and some of them can be very patronizing because they can think of themselves as the experts, so they don't listen. But most doctors are, you know, it's they live in a complicated world too, and they're there's a certain amount of confusion for them. And they just try to do the best they can. So what I would like to see is that patients talk more directly to their doctors and be more assertive about holding their feet to, their fi to the fire about adverse effects of psych the psychiatric drugs that they are so readily prescribing and the issues having to do with tapering off the drugs. Anybody who gets a psychiatric drug prescription should be asking their doctor, when and how am I going to be able to go off of this drug? And if the doctor goes, oh, don't worry, we'll get to that when we come to it, the patient has to ask again. To speak to a doctor, what's important is that you maintain an even tone and be insistent, and be reasonable. Do not raise your voice. Don't get angry. Don't cry. Don't show any emotion. Because if you show emotion, the doctor will think that you're mentally unbalanced. And then the doctor will retreat from that. So it's important to be assertive in a very determined fashion, but be firm and polite at the same time. Still, don't let them get away with weaseling out of these hard questions. If you start taking an antidepressant and then you find you can't sleep or you're more nervous than when you started or you have, you know, you're throwing up all the time or, you know, whatever your side effects are, if that occurred after you started taking the antidepressant, it's probably due to the drug and don't let them tell you that it's something else. That, you know, they have to address the problem of the drug having an adverse effect. If they can't address the problem, then you don't, you can't trust their advice about the drug. So I think that patients really need to be more assertive. I think that, that this is an era, the whole culture of medicine is about to change because of this, by the way, the patient participation is, is rising as, as a, an important movement throughout medicine. Doctors are having a bit of a problem with this, you know, it's a, it's a culture change. 
Yeah, so I'm talking about more patient advocacy. Um, if you are in that 90 plus percent that do not have severe uh, psychiatric illness, you can advocate for yourself and you should. What Something you just said jumped out at me because you were talking about basically advising patients, yes, to speak up, to advocate for themselves, to hold their doctors accountable, but to be a little careful because the doctors will, if they get a little too emotional, they'll, they'll frame it in terms of their kind of psychiatric model. And they'll say, well, this is yet more evidence of, of diagnosis ABC. Does this all speak to the larger issue of, of the stigma and that even, even the doctors are at the whim of this, the larger stigmas surrounding all of these issues and people who are, are struggling to cope with something, but they wind up being placed in a box and saying, okay, if I say this or I, beha- or I behave that way, then you're going to just hunker down, you're going you're gonna to prescribe even more drugs, and you're going to make some snap decision about me. Is that part of it? In my opinion, where stigma about so-called mental illness radiates the most intensely is in the medical profession. You know, doctors are well-intentioned. A lot of them are very nice people, but their culture is such that a lot of them consider patients to be less than, just right off the bat. And then a patient with a psychiatric diagnosis is even more less than. Uh, and nowhere is this more true than in psychiatry. And that's, that's really kind of a disgrace to the profession. So once you have a psychiatric diagnosis, even if it's been incorrectly applied, if a doctor sees that in your chart, you know, a, lot of, a lot of what you say is likely to be discounted. So medicine itself disenfranchises people with those types of diagnosis. And um, that's, that's on medicine. You know, I, the, I think it's, it's incredibly ironic to see you know, doctors carrying on about eliminating the stigma when their own profession is just the worst at it. Earlier, you were talking about how the mythology has been embedded in the way everybody thinks about um, psychiatric disorder or mental health or whatever it is that you want to call it. And uh, it's true that those assumptions have been embedded in public health programs and funded by billions of dollars in government funds and that every every year you'll you'll read about how like the you know like enormous numbers of people are suffering from mental illness and that's because the public you know public health um machinery is justifying its uh its funding it wants to provide services to more and more people and those services often are drugs i mean that's like that's it so that's, that's the cheapest, fastest way of providing so-called treatment. So one final question, what gives you hope? Well, recently there have been developments in the UK uh, that were spearheaded by uh, patient, the patient movement and have gotten some traction in the British government um, some recognition in British psychiatry and may influence the national guidelines and also the European guidelines for the treatment of depression. Where the conceptualization of mental illness in the United States is, is far more rigid than in Europe. 
So the developments in the UK and possibly in Europe show that there's going there's some some changes in the way the profession thinks of itself and of patients. Now there are so many people who have been on and off psychiatric drugs that there's a there's actually sort of a um, there's a population of doctors who've experienced withdrawal syndrome and get it. You know, they get they get it that it's a problem. And some of them have gotten very active, uh, and uh, some of them are publishing, like Mark Horowitz is publishing and David Taylor. So that makes headway in the journals, and then the academics start to discuss the papers in the journals, and if the academics start to discuss it, then eventually it filters down to, uh, you know, to your local prescriber. But that takes a long time. And, uh, and as I said, you know, those prescribers don't read the journals and they might not even pay any attention to academic discussions. So, uh, so I think that the patients need to bring it to them. Thank you, Adele Framer, for all of this. That website, once again, is survivingantidepressants.org, which is spelled exactly the way it sounds. And it is, as you've heard just now, a vast source of information on withdrawal from psychotropic drugs, including case histories, tips on safe tapering, and beyond that, a perspective into our shared humanity and what it means to live through each day. Thank you all for listening, and thanks again so much to Adele Framer. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.